Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 34. I'm your host, Dan Holzman. On this podcast, I'll be talking with juggler Brad Weston. Before we get to our conversation, let's thank our sponsors, starting with the International Jugglers Association. I'm leaving this Monday to attend the annual convention, and it's a fantastic group. I hope to see some of my listeners there. That would be fantastic. Also, it's brought to you by my personal coaching website, braindrizzles.com. So if you're a professional performer looking to add more comedy, more charisma, more success to your career, come see me at braindrizzles.com. All right, enough promos, enough advertisement. Let's get to the talk with the great Brad Weston. Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 34. I have a very interesting guest today, someone I actually haven't even really met in person or had any real conversation with other than on the phone here. Let's have a big welcome for Brad Weston. Hi, Brad. Hey, how's it going? Now, Brad, we also talked a little bit about your current job. That sounds like one of the hardest gigs. Could you, would you mind describing where you're at currently and what your job is? Yeah, I am at an amusement park in Iowa. It is the largest amusement park in, in the, I don't know, surrounding states. It's kind of funny because a lot of people look at amusement parks as something that people in their teens and 20s do. However, this is one of those small kind of boutique parks where they've got one juggler, one magician, and they also have a circus. But there's not a lot of entertainment, so they're making up for that by just getting as high a quality act as they can. Yeah, I think people think of it as kind of an entry gig. I know my first gig at 17 was at Six Flags Magic Mountain. I did eight hours a day, half an hour on, half an hour off. Now, what's your schedule? Because you also add in some stilt walking as well, don't you? Yeah, there's two sets of stilt walking in the morning, and then there's three stage shows. So three stage shows, and how long are the stage shows? They're 20 minutes each. And are these like interactive comedy, or are they to music? What kind of show are you doing out there? Well, pretty much every time I work, I try to get a little bit of everything in there to keep the audience engaged, not too much of any one thing. Although predominantly the through line is me building a relationship with the audience verbally, making eye contact, talking about individual people that I see and their reactions. Yeah, so it's a pretty verbal show mostly, but there's some, there's a, a song and dance number in there and uh, lots of other stuff. Now, what I did was what they call like sort of line relief, walk arounds. You know, I'd entertain before they had other shows. Are you in your own little show space? Yeah, this is real cool. There is the Coca-Cola Cafe right in the middle of the park. And my stage actually rises up from the ground. It's, uh, it's got hydraulics under it. And you sort of like a 360, do you appear in the middle? Uh, well, it's mostly, it's mostly front, you know, people in front of me. And there's some challenges with it, too. Like, for instance, uh, anybody who does comedy will know that you want to get your audience as close to you as possible. In this environment, the audience, the front row is 20 feet away. Mm, that's tough. In between me and the audience, people can actually walk. They can cut through the space to, to save themselves 20 steps. And so they do. In order to get to the food at the back of the, of the place, they have to come through the front and then walk down the center aisle. So... It's a very challenging environment. The sun's directly in my eyes. The wind is unpredictable at best. I don't mind. You know, I'm learning a lot about how to do hat tricks in the wind. Hmm. Yeah, we used to call that space the, the comedy death zone. Yeah, right. Like if they want to put up a dance floor, like what if we have the first 50 feet be the dance floor 
and then start the chairs after that. That's yeah. always a bad idea. Yeah, and I've uh, I talked to them at the park about uh, blocking off the back several rows on days when it's not very busy to force people to at least get as close as they can. But the choice was made to allow people to sit wherever they want to sit. Yeah. And the people walking in front of you, I've had that too at some gigs. Uh, I had that thing at the Oklahoma Arts Festival because it was like a sidewalk. You know, like I say, if it would save them time, if it's more convenient, they're going to walk in front of you. Oh, yeah. But as a comedian, at least you can kind of make light of that. Do you sort of bring them into your show a bit? Yeah. And even when I'm doing a silent piece, I, I mean, I, I'm very expressive physically. I'll indicate whatever's distracting. In fact, I think it's kind of, I think it's death on stage to not acknowledge what the distractions are to the audience. I want to be sharing the same experience that my audience is having, because I feel that's the only way to sort of bring them back into focus. Well, also, it's kind of like the thing where, like, let's say you have a heckler, and only you can hear the heckler, but the audience isn't aware. So in that case, to sort of refer to it is, is hard and difficult and probably won't work. You're right. But if, you're, if something is that everybody notices it, like people walk in front of you, you have a couple of choices, right? You can kind of act like pissed off and, and angry and not acknowledge it. And people are like, oh, this poor guy, people are walking in front of him. And But to sort of make light of it or at least acknowledge the elephant in the room, I mean, it's hard to ignore someone walking in front of your, your juggling act. Oh, yeah. The heckler uh, on that topic, if somebody's heckling me and they're funny, I'm totally fine with it. I don't care why people are laughing as long as they're all having a good time. Well, it's the same thing like with a team act. It's like sometimes you want to own the laugh. Like if I'm not getting the laugh, it doesn't count. Or if someone from the audience gets the laugh, it doesn't count. That's a pretty ego-driven thing, isn't it? Yeah. Or it doesn't matter, right? It doesn't matter if, if, the, if the volunteer is getting all the laughs, as long as you're getting the laughs. Yeah, as long as they're coming from somewhere. As long as people are having fun. That's what, that's what my purpose is as an entertainer, is to facilitate entertainment. Yeah, and you're the one cashing the check at the end of the day. Yeah. So if it's fun and, and you're able to share the limelight, share the, the spotlight, if it makes the show better, then you're doing your job. Yeah. Now, as, as far as, as learning all this, and actually I wanted to say that when I had my job, I was getting $80 a day. So I don't want to put you on the spot, but I hope that the pay has gone up a bit since, since my days back in the 70s. Yeah, it's, uh, it's great. And I really, I really recommend it as far as a gig for a lot of different performers. Like you said, people can kind of have this idea of it being kind of a lower end type of starting place. And it can be. And the conditions can be very harsh. I remember like me and Barry, we had a show in Texas. Like yours, it was like a food court. But it was so cold that in the, before we started our show, we'd hang out in the bathroom where they had those dryers, you know, that the, the dried your hands, the, the hot air dryers just to try to warm up our hands enough to get through the show. That's pretty rough. It's the only time I ever got tendonitis because at that time we were doing like a 20 minute club passing act and we would do it you know, multiple times per day and we would do it on the weekends and then go home. And I remember one weekend it was so bad I couldn't go home. I had to rest up that whole week. Oh, wow. So, cause it was a combination of the cold weather and way too many shows, way too many shows. All right, enough about me. Got a little Dan centric there for a second. Hey, I don't really know much about you. Let's, let's talk about your background. Where did you grow up and, and how did you first discover juggling? Well, I grew up in Chicago. I lived right downtown. When I was 12, my sister wanted to give me a Christmas present but didn't really have any money. So she hand sewed me uh, three bean bags. And that was my start. 
Now, was uh, she a juggler? Or did she teach you as well? No, she didn't oh. know anything about it. So I, uh, I went and found the book uh, Circus Techniques. Is that Hubby Burgess? Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. the one. And that was what I used to get started. By the following summer, I was then 13, I started street performing at the Lincoln Park Zoo in downtown Chicago. Wow, that's an early start. Were you always sort of interested in sort of theater and, and showbiz even before that? Yeah, I, I sort of knew that I would do something uh, with variety arts. They, they were on TV all the time as a kid. This was uh, in the early 80s. It seemed like there were lots of variety shows, lots of places to get inspiration. And also uh, in Chicago, there were street performers traveling through from all over the world. So, yeah, there's a lot of inspiration around me to, to get in. Anybody stand out in your memory as a, a very inspirational act? Well, one guy that I, I remember uh, was Will Soto, who's a juggler and tightrope walker. Yeah, he was a big presence in Key West, if, I, if I'm not mistaken. That's the guy, yeah. Now, did you ever run into Tony Flowers out there by the lake? Oh, yeah, sure. And a lot of people say Illinois, but it's Illinois. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. It's uh, The S is silent. Something I learned actually right before the podcast started. I, I said, are you from Illinois, as if they were plural? Yeah, I basically, I, I told uh, Dan that I wouldn't do the podcast unless he corrected that. Yeah, you got to represent, right? You got you to have pride oh, yeah. in where you're from. And there was a good scene out there. I mean, I remember uh, Andy Heads from, from Chicago. And were, were you familiar with Paul Bachman? Did you ever run into yeah. him out there? Yeah, I ran into him a lot, actually. He was, uh, early on in my career, he gave me lots of advice uh, about ways to approach the work. Yeah, he's a real good guy. A good guy. Was. He came to one of our first shows as well, and uh, he actually stated that he abandoned, not an abandoned, it was uh, condemned. We were staying in a condemned hotel in Minnesota at Lake uh, Shasta, or Lake Chaska, and here's this very wealthy guy, not wealthy, but successful from the oil business. He had as a sideline to his juggling. He loved juggling so much, he actually came out to a Renaissance fair, stayed in the condemned hotel just to see our act. So he was a real, real lover of juggling. We lost him uh, last year and a real, a real juggling enthusiast and a great guy. Yeah. Now you did a lot of acting training. I also was a sort of an actor starting out. Was that part of a plan that you, you went to this, it's called the Piven Theater Workshop. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, that was actually a summer school when I was a kid. I think I was maybe 14 at that point. One of my classmates was Jeremy Piven, oh, a famous actor. Sure. From Entourage. Yeah. It was his parents were the ones running the thing. And it pretty much covered, uh, there was some circus technique, there was some pantomime, some physical acting, and then just straight on method acting classes. Mixed in with, this is how you stretch your body, this is how you prepare. It was really great. Now, I'd recommend acting myself. I mean, I, it's funny, because when I was 14, I went to Isamata, the Idawal School of Music and the Arts, which is another drama camp. It was a three-month or two-month drama camp over the summer. And I learned so much that I applied to my career as a comedy juggler. Would you say that the acting has really helped you as a, as a comedy performer? Yeah, I think for what I do and the way I approach it, it's kind of critical. I mean, especially now, now that the the state of the art of juggling has progressed so much since I've started, thank God I know how to manipulate charisma. I don't know, man. I see a lot of guys who are better technically, but as far as sort of the application of it for show business purposes, I think the guys from the 80s are still like the passing zone. 
still have the best formula. I mean, I love the new sort of trapping and flowing kind of styles, but I don't know where those guys are working. I think the technique is better, the market is tighter, but I think less people are working. That's probably true. But it's, it is kind of intimidating when you see guys who say like, I will never be that good. Even yeah, if I I'm, practice... point, I'm seeing children. Yes. Like, I'll never be that good. Like the guy you see a kid like four or five Diablos, you know, four Diablos on the string, mm -hmm. which is I don't even do Diablo, but I just know that if I practiced forever, I would never do that. Yeah. That no matter, no matter of time could overcome their initial, I don't know if it's because they ex were exposed to it so young, but I just couldn't do it. The internet has a whole lot to do with the speed at, at the progression in all of the arts. I mean, even you look at dance and there's children doing crazy acro dance numbers that you never would have seen 20 years ago. I, I think everything is growing really quickly. It's pretty pretty cool time to be alive to, to watch that happen. Yeah, but our time was cool too. I mean, there's some things that were around for us that aren't around. Like you went to uh, Ringling Brothers Clown College. Right, yeah, yeah. We've had, a, we've had a, quite a few alumni from there. What was your experience like there? It was amazing. Yeah, very, very intense. There was one thing about it that I didn't like, and that was that it felt like a competition to get jobs. I don't know. I've never been a real competition-y kind of person, you know? Well, that's how it's kind of set up. Like like half the clowns are offered a, a, a contract after it's over. So it's kind of built in, isn't it? Or it was. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I mean, they basically said one-third. Mm, uh, one-third. Yeah. Now, there's a thing I'm interested in because this is still existing. Uh, when I was, I think, 16, I went to Blue Lake, California, because I had heard of a physical theater school there, and I was there for one night and got scared off by the uh, owner, or maybe not scared off, but not welcomed. Okay. And, and I, I never went back, and it was, uh, it's called the Del Arte School of Physical Theater, and you spent a whole year there. Yeah. Can you give us a little bit of idea of what, what kind of training they give you there and what you experienced? It was a lot of everything. I mean, everything from uh, mime again and um, physical theater. There were some pretty intensive circus technique classes. And kind of like going to a place like Celebration Barn where there's, you know, great teachers that teach a specific thing. At Del Arte, they, they bring in teachers. So you'll have like a two-week workshop that's an intensive. I think I would recommend it pretty highly for people because there's a lot of acting techniques that that a lot of variety performers are, are totally lacking. Like the idea of working with tempo mm -hmm. in their performance, the idea of minimum to maximum and then back again. I think even just the idea of emotion. Like you look, you watch someone's show and you think, you're, you're displaying the same emotion from beginning to end. Mm -hmm. And it's like, and also you say like, where's the tempo? Where's the variety? Where's the ups and downs? You're at yeah. the same mode of, of speech, the same thought, the same kind of feeling from beginning to end, and that's not good theater. No, it's not. Not good theater. But hey, you had a really great thing you could do, which obviously is no longer there, but I wish I had even met this gentleman. You studied pantomime with Marcel Marceau. Oh yeah, now this was a, a fairly short mm. course. Okay. He came through Chicago and did a three-day workshop. How old was he at this time? Was it towards the end of his career? Oh gosh, it's really hard to tell with that guy. He seemed um, old for a long time, didn't he? Yeah. <laughs> Like for a yeah. long time, it's like 
He seemed ageless, but yet old. And he, he acted much more curmudgeonly even than right. his age would suggest was appropriate. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, he was a hard guy to learn from. <laughs> Let me put it that way. Like, here's why it was so hard. At one point, he said, you know, the hand position is very important. And someone said, oh, well, could you, could you show us the position of the hand again? So he turned his back to the class and showed the hand position to the camera, which was filming all of us. But we didn't get to see it. Okay, <laughs> right? Yeah, I mean, and he, basically someone said, could you show us again? And he said, once only. Was he doing it because he was filming it for a, a, a class that he wanted to, you know, a special or something? Or It turns out he was filming it because the video was going to be a special gift for his buddy, Michael Jackson. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, so it wasn't really about the class as much as his own personal agenda. Yeah, I think so. Mm, I mean, weird. Yeah. yeah, he was a weirdo. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, like I said, I never, uh, he's certainly a legendary figure, but that whole, like, Etienne de Crew and this whole, like, sort of mime school, never went there my, myself. It's a little out of my comfort zone. I did study with Richmond Shepard, though, a famous mime. It's sort of like a tall midget, isn't a famous mime from Los Angeles. And how'd you start your professional career then? You had a lot of training, you started really early as a juggler, you're on the street. And then what was sort of the, then the transition from the street into your first sort of contracted gigs? Well, it was pretty like a soft start. <laughs> I mean, because I kept doing the street for many, many, many years after I was doing regular paid work, contract work. I, I got a job in a dinner theater where they hired me not to be a juggler, but to be Merlin, Merlin the Magnificent. So I had to learn a, a card production routine. We were basically producing uh, card fans from your bare hands. Oh, okay. Which was strange to hire somebody who didn't know how to do it to do it. But, you know, I've always had the philosophy, if work comes my way, I just say yes. And then I hustle to get good at whatever it is to, to pull the job off. Well, that's the showbiz way. You always say yes. I'm willing to stretch myself. And how hard was it to learn uh, like something like that, like card fans produced? Harder than juggling? Or do you think there's a sort of a comparable... Oh, yeah. type of degree i think it's the same kind of thing it's it's object manipulation and it really appeals to me for that reason there's some other types of magic tricks i like because of that like coin production same kind of thing uh, a lot of coin flourishes are essentially juggling and now you have that cardology which is not even like about the magic as much as it's about the manipulation of playing cards yeah yeah and that's something i'm, I'm starting to see at juggling festivals it's pretty beautiful. Where do you sort of draw the line as far as a, a description of juggling? Do you think something like this, are you sort of a purist, like that's juggling, or is juggling purely the tossing of objects? No, I consider juggling theatrical object manipulation. That's a good way to describe it. Theatrical object manipulation. My business card said theatrical object manipulator, which intellectually expresses what I do, but it didn't help sales, so. <laughs> right, right, right. What, what is it now? Is it, something, is it action theater or comedy out of control or what's? Uh, well, now it just says the Brad Weston Experience comedy juggling show. Mm. Or comedy juggling and variety show. Because I do a lot of things that are kind of related to circus technique. I mean, there's a little bit of mime in there. There's a little bit of like rollabola, unicycle, you know, straitjacket escape. Right, so you're sort of more of an uh, all-around variety performer. Do you even sort of qualify yourself as a juggler, per se? I do. I mean, if somebody asks me specifically what I do, juggler is the word I use first. 
But you haven't sort of pigeonholed yourself and saying, well, okay, that's all I can do. It's all about sort of just expressing myself creatively through this object manipulation. You know, I think for me, the relationship between me and the audience is more important than anything else I do while I'm on stage. I think you can entertain people flipping a hat. There's just so many ways to go about it that, no, I don't, I don't want to ever feel limited like I have to only throw things and catch things. Well, you have kind of a, a different schools of thought. You definitely have your specialists who, who juggle one thing. Like you look like someone like a Victor Key, basically a ball juggling specialist. And you have other people who are just sort of variety artists, enthusiasts, who if it's yo-yo or uh, frisbee, if it, as long as it's cool, I like to refer to it as sort of the gravity arts. I think that's a good term, the gravity arts. <laughs> <laughs> and as, as speaking of that, there's a type of juggling, a contact that was sort of tried to, they try to make that into sort of its own sort of product called Fushigi. Yeah, that's right. And that's something you should have had an opinion on. So what do you think about that? What did, you, what did you think about Fushigi? I think it's kind of dropped out of sight now. I should preface anything I say uh, with uh, admitting openly that I've been a contact juggler since, oh man, like 90-something, 92, 93. And I would, I would do it in a lot, most of my performances would include it. In fact, I would open with it because it was this nice sort of silent, magical thing I could do while the audience was getting used to having me there in their face. Mm -hmm. Like all of a sudden, people in the audience started yelling, oh, that's Fushigi. <laughs> and they were yelling things like, uh, anyone can do it. They were oh, right, right. I think a lot of people, the uh, less intelligent, were, were uh, assuming that this was just a trick and not a skill. And in fact, people were even going so far as to, to claim that I was using an anti-gravity device. You know, like somehow you can defy gravity with a, by flipping a switch. Man, if that were true, man, out of business. Yeah, I remember it was basically a, just a regular contact ball. It had some kind of maybe center to it, like a some kind of solid center. Or what was their big innovation? Or was there was there none? There was none. Just basically, the marketing. Yeah, here's how they went about it. They the guy Camarano is his last name. I don't remember his first name, mm -hmm. but he's kind of like a uh, an infomercial guy, basically. One of his other products on the market was kind of like a flip-flop with a suction cup on the bottom that you could leave in your shower oh. that would have like a, a scuffy pad to, <laughs> to, to scrub your bunions while you're standing in the shower. Okay. So he didn't care like what the thing was. Sure. He was on YouTube and he saw some videos of people doing it and he realized that nobody was mass marketing this for the public. And he moved like a million units in a year. Right. I think this is the most sold juggling prop, you know, ever. Must be. And I think some property of it, maybe this is with other contact balls as well, like if you left it in the sun, things could catch on fire. Yeah, so <laughs> basically he, he went out and found a bunch of people who could already do it, Yeah. hired them to shoot the commercial, and partway through the, the shoot, they were having these people hold poses for a long time, and the sun was burning them, uh, which the ball will do. I actually have a scar on my knuckle from posing for too long in one position with one a uh, long, long time ago. Somebody said, hey, why don't you, why don't you put a ball in the middle of this to, uh, you know, so the sun can't focus through right. it? And it wasn't their innovation. I unfortunately don't know the name of the guy who made that. Right. And somebody was actually producing it uh, three to five years before Fushigi was a product. 
And what do you think about that? Like, let's say someone came to you, they had this job opportunity, said, look, you know, Brad, we know you're a great contact juggler. We want you to be the guy who demonstrates the fushigi. Because I think for myself, I would have been like, all right, it's just a job, right? Or would you have thought, like, kind of lowered the art form? I, I don't know. It's it's kind of hard to answer. I mean, looking back on it, I would absolutely not do it because the product made a lot of lies and um, made, yeah, made yeah. the art form look like it wasn't an art form at all, but just pure trickery. I know some people, like they say, I don't want to be on TV at all because yeah. somehow then people will take their material. I'm of the other mind, and I think you are as well, especially judging by your your TV credits, that sort of the idea is to get on TV. Well, yeah. I mean, the idea is to, the idea is to go make money. <laughs> well, you know? yeah. I mean, we could, we could be like more touchy-feely. So the idea is to make people happy. The idea is to bring laughter and joy to the world. But as a professional at a certain point, uh, it is a profession. Yeah. And, and uh, I mean, for me, being on TV every time was kind of a kick. I mean, it's, it's certainly a lot of fun. And it's, it's funny to be recognized by people from a TV appearance. I think the most important reason to do it is so that you can have that inch of real estate on your, uh, your web page that says, I've been on TV. It means people are more, more likely to meet your price. Well, in my day, uh, which is <laughs> my day back, back in the early days of- Oh, like it's the, still your day. The, I know, it's still my day. I'm still sort of in the game. But in the early 80s, you couldn't get good footage unless you were on TV. The oh, quality yeah. of the video cameras and the quality of the editing made it very poor, like if you had a, a home one done. So we all wanted to get on TV so we'd have good video reels. That, that's what it was for us. But yeah, yeah, let's go through a few of these. Maybe just give me some, some thoughts because you did a bunch. You did the Letterman. Uh, yeah, the first show. one I ever did was the Bozo Show. Oh, right. It's a Chicago-based kids program. And I did that three times. And then... And then Jenny Jones. Yeah, a talk show host for a few minutes in the in the early days, comedian. Yeah. So and, don't start uh, with Letterman, you're saying. You work out from Bozo, Jenny Jones. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah, and then, uh, yeah, I think uh, I think Letterman was that, or maybe the Today Show. Yeah, in any case, Letterman, it was the stupid human trick cement. Um, and it, when I flew out and did the sort of pre-taping, I got bumped. Mm. And then I got flown out again and bumped again. And I got bumped a total of five times. So every time they flew you out to New York, they would what, put you up in a hotel. Uh-huh. You'd, you'd come to the theater. You'd be all ready to do your bit. And it'd just they'd go, uh, Brad, not this time. Yep. Five times. Yeah, and it was, it was a little stressful. But, you know, I mean, after the third time, it was like, oh, whatever. Right, right. You know, I'm getting paid for the appearance, although no residuals money, obviously. Well, you also got paid for the appearance. That's nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. every time. So, right. I mean, it was it was nice. It was nice to get a trip to New York, you know? Yeah. For sure. Yeah. And and then, so when you finally got on, was it just like, what was the experience like? Was it like, okay, finally? Or were you kind of over it by then? Well, I mean, <laughs> once the cameras are rolling, it's, it's always fun. But uh, I had to pretend I was not a professional juggler. Mm-hmm. And they told me that I was a uh, an event coordinator, All right. like a party planner, basically. And then and then David was sort of grilling me about the <laughs> my party planning business. I mean, as a, a trained improviser, I could have rolled with it, but I decided to kind of pretend like it was all BS and roll my eyes at him. Mm. 
And I think it maybe got some pretty good laughs the way it went because there was a lot of the blogosphere blew up. Who is that guy and why was he lying? Oh, that's <laughs> funny. Yeah. Yeah, when I did, I did the Tonight Show, I did, uh, it was meal or no meal, but they let me choose my profession. Okay. And I chose animal portraiture. Wow. <laughs> now, nice. A drawer of dachshunds. That's, that's what I was. So, so wow. you did, what's, you did the, the golf club, the classic golf club balance. Was that the trick you did on Letterman? Yeah, that's right. So that's where the golf club across your forehead, one on the end, a ball, and then another club on top, and you spun the top club. Yeah. Yeah, and you do that trick too, don't you? You know, what I did was, when I saw that, uh, I, I learned it initially that way. But then we did this long comedy routine, and after a certain point, I got rid of the club going across my head and put it right on my forehead, just the, the club, at the one that goes up and down, right on my forehead. Because I had to hold it for like a good you know, two or three minutes while we tried to get some comedy out of it. <laughs> and I see a lot of people doing it that way. Obviously, it's a lot easier, and you can get a much better spin on the top club. Oh, right. But uh, I never even performed it once with the uh, club in the other position. It's kind of squirrely. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. It's a hard one to master, so, so kudos for getting that under control and doing it on the show. Yeah, thanks. I also did that same trick on uh, Ellen. Well, how were the two experiences? What, I mean, how did they compare? Uh, well, they compared when, when Letterman walks down the hall, you're supposed to avoid eye contact. And if at all possible, they try to push you like into whatever door is open to get out of the way. Odd. Okay. Right. Now, Ellen, on the other hand, she comes into your dressing room and, and says hi <laughs> before the show starts. That's nice. I mean, that's that's kind of the way show business should be, right? Yeah, I agree. I mean, you're you're. I remember the great words of Patty Labelle. We got to open for Patty Labelle, and, and we, we went into her dressing room afterwards and said, "Thanks for it was so nice to work for you." And she goes, "Honey, you're not working for me. We're working together." Oh, right. Well, that's classy. Yeah. So some people have that attitude. It's like we're all in show business, and some people don't want to be looked in the eye. That's too bad. Now you're still you're still doing TV shows. In fact, you did one recently. You didn't do America's Got Talent. You did Britain's Got Talent. Yeah, yeah. Here's here's what happened with this. I was talking to an agent uh, that I've I've known for years and worked uh, a few jobs here and there. He, he sent me out once to a a Turkish TV show. And he was saying to me that uh, he felt I should do America's Got Talent. And I was telling him, no way. I feel that the show is, well, okay, I, I was about to say I feel that it's bad for jugglers, but we got some jugglers right now. They're doing very well on the show. So, so what, but why did you think it was bad for jugglers? Because it was the way they edited it or just their attitude towards juggling? What yeah. made you even have that thought initially? Well, to be honest with you, I don't think they like any variety arts at all. I think... I think they're really abusive on the show. And I think they don't care if they have a success or tears and tears make better TV. So I think they kind of push everybody a little too far. And they, I think they try to make people look bad to get to that, to get to that point. Well, I don't think, I don't think you care if you're entertaining good or entertaining bad, as long as you're entertaining. What if they can get out of you sort of, what I don't like is that, I mean, I like the show overall, and I always recommend people do it just because of the, the great visibility and the chance it gives you. I don't like their sort of lack of knowledge about the variety arts. Sure. Like, they'll see something go like, oh, I've never seen that before. And you go, well, that's the Russian bar. Or like the girl who's doing the back bend and shooting the, the, the bow and arrow at the contortionist. Oh. Great trick, but once again, that's a, whoever came up with that initially 
should be getting some of the credit. Yeah, just recently, uh, somebody did a, a, a four-stack roll of bola. Yeah. And they said, wow, I've never seen anything yeah. like this. And it's like, really? <laughs> okay. You see a lot of magicians like that, too. Like, they had the fella recently. I go, I could buy that card trick. I mean, he did it nicely, the, the football player. But I'm like, that's a, that's a $10.99 <laughs> special down at my local store. Right. Hey, it, it, I, you just think they'd have some expert backstage telling them, this is this guy's original bit. Oh, this guy, this is purely stock from the box. Sure. Yeah, so, so anyway, I'm talking to this agent. Okay, this is about Britain's Got Talent. Go he's ahead. trying to convince me that I should do it, and I, I have a lot of respect for this guy, and he's been around showbiz for 70 years or something. Right. So I said, okay, okay, I'll consider it. Three days later, he calls me back, and he's like, pack your bags, Weston. You're going to England. Mm. <laughs> like, what? So he sends me out there, and it was it was kind of madness because when you fly out there, generally you'll get on a plane at night, you know, at the end of the day, and then fly all night and, and arrive in the morning there. Mm -hmm. It was one of those things. I was pretty excited about going to a new place and doing this new thing, so I couldn't sleep at all on the plane. And I had to get, uh, I had to get in a cab to go to London from the airport. And then in London, I got on a train to Birmingham. And then in Birmingham, I got in a cab to go to the set. Okay. And, and basically, it's like, uh, oh, great, you're here. Quick, get in this room. And they throw me into a room with, you know, three or 400 really nervous people. Right. Okay, so there was a couple problems. I didn't have any local currency on me because they said they were providing meals, but they weren't. Oh, all right. <laughs> okay. And I did have some local currency earlier, but I paid the cabs all of that money, and they said they would reimburse me for the cabs, but they didn't. Mm. Okay. So, so no money, hungry, no sleeping. Yeah, no sleeping, uh, no food, and I was in that room for about twelve hours. Oh, okay. And, and they're constantly throwing me in front of like little little cameras to interview this or that, or have me frame other people in a shot. I mean, they were basically poking the bear all day long. And also one of the caveats I had to do the show was they had to give me a, a space to warm up before it was showtime. Right. And they never did that either. I had to go into the lobby and people were, and I'm up on a sword. I, I walk barefoot on the edge of a single sword blade uh, while holding a dagger in my teeth. And on the point of the dagger up in the air is a double-bladed machete spinning around. Mm-hmm. And then I juggle three more swords in my hands. And this is a, a trick that I developed um, back in 2000 for Ripley's Believe It or Not TV. And I'm, I'm, as far as I know, I'm the only person to ever do a stunt like this. Uh, so you're standing barefoot on a, not on a single sword. Because I see people like sort of walk up the, the ladder of swords, but you're yeah. on a single sword. Yeah, single sword. So it's just like walking a tightrope, only right. it's sharp and I'm barefoot. Wow. Did you have to work up to that or did you have to like build up foot endurance or how, how does someone walk on a edge of a sword you know it's still painful <laughs> okay. after 16 years it's just one of those things where in order to balance you can't be thinking about your feet you have to be thinking about your center of gravity your upper body more yeah yeah so it's i almost want to say it's like a zen thing i mean i don't i don't study zen but it's a but focus it, thing yeah you gotta know how to keep your focus away from where you can't have it all right, so let's catch up. You're, you're, you're tired, you're hungry, there's no place to practice, and you're doing this burly stunt on the edge of a knife. Yeah, and suddenly they say, you're on. Oh, You've got okay. five minutes to get to the stage, you know, which is the other side of the building, of right. course. 
So I get on the stage and it's a huge, huge theater. There's maybe 2000 people in the seats. Uh, Simon Cowell's there and his whole crew. Right. And Simon's like, so Brad, tell me, you say you're the most dangerous performer we've ever had. But I never said that. I, I don't really speak about sure, myself. Sure, sure. But I went with it, whatever. Sure. Brad, you say you're God's gift to entertainment, the greatest juggler who ever lived. Exactly. Can you live up to that? Yeah. He said, but we had a guy who swallowed a bunch of swords, was 30 feet in the air, upside down. How do you answer for yourself? <laughs> and I, I felt like the audience was sort of taking a collective gasp, wondering, like, how badly this was going to suck. But I just looked at him square in the eye and said, Simon, I don't swallow. <laughs> yeah. And okay. The audience just went nuts. Oh, that's, that's a good, hey, in the moment, maybe a little edgy, but a, but a good response in the moment. Yeah. I mean, he was putting me on the spot. Sure. I felt like the only way to survive was to hand it back. Hey, you know, that's what you do in the moment, right? You just, you don't, you don't wilt. Yeah. You go, all right, you set me up. This is what it is. Here you go, buddy. Do with what you want. I don't yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, And And uh, that tamed him pretty quickly. Right, right, right. Like, well, okay. <laughs> All right. Yeah, and then, so the other thing that was a challenge for the performance was that, I don't know if you do uh, tightrope or any kind of balance thing like that. Bola Bola is about as far as I go. Okay. Like a single so one on the floor. So then you know that it helps to be able to look at the horizon. Sure. Basically. You want to keep your eyes up. Yeah. Well, because of the, the direction of the sword, my eyes are off in the wings. And there's these two sort of comedic kind of backstage sidekicks. I think Ant and Deck, right? Or something like that? Those are the guys, yeah. yeah. They were jumping around trying <laughs> to distract me. Oh, no way. Yeah, trying to make me lose my focus on balancing. Wow. But That's I pulled hardcore. it off. That's, yeah. that's like, I mean, people have a lot of stories, but to actually actually try to make you drop is pretty bad. It's messed up, yeah. you know, because, because I mean, I'm holding these swords, and if I drop one and then fall on it, I mean, I could theoretically die. Yeah. I mean, it's not something I tend to worry about. I usually feel pretty in control, but it was... Those two guys care. They don't seem like caring types. Yeah. So I finish. The audience goes crazy. They loved it. And there's a woman that's one of the judges said I I couldn't watch it was too scary, but eventually they all came around and they all four voted that I should continue. Mm, okay. Yeah, which was great. I yeah. mean, it was exactly what I went there for. But after developing material for their show like crazy when I got home, so they'd get all new sort of bigger stunts. Right. They'd call me up and say thanks, but no thanks. Oh, because they always want you to up yourself and top yourself. And Where can you take it from there? Yeah, well, I had something cool. I was going to ride a machete skateboard and leap over a wall of fire. That's cool. Okay, yeah, I can see yeah. that. Yeah. And I mean, it would totally work on their show, but I think maybe it was just the expense of flying me out there. I was probably the most expensive actor. Did you have a, did you have a video of it? Maybe if you had showed them? Or, just, or was it an idea? Yeah, I, I mean, at that point, it was purely conceptual. Now I have. Now I've, I've got it done. Is it a, well, I don't want to get too deep into it, but is it a single machete or, or two machetes? It's a single machete. Really? Yeah, so it's balancing on the knife, that's moving, and then leaping over the fire and back onto the skateboard. That's, that's a good sign. I'd like, is there somewhere we could see that? Is it on YouTube or? Pretty much going to wait until I can use it somewhere really great. You know, I find, for me at least, I don't like to get things out there too much 
for other people to see until until I've used it first. Yeah, I think for me, like I say, my avenues to get stuff out there aren't as great. Like when we were doing the Raspinis uh, in the day, it was that was the goal to get on TV. Now I just find like if I were to wait for myself to get back on TV, it might be quite a while. So I like to put stuff out on Facebook as much as I can. That sounds like a tough gig, but on your blog, you, know, so you talk about some stuff and you talk about the worst gig that you ever did. Do you, do you mind sharing that story with us? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I apologize in advance to all the more sensitive listeners out there. This uh, involves bodily fluids in some way. <laughs> yes, it does. All right. So set, set the scene for us, Brad. The worst gig you ever did. Okay. So I had just graduated Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Clown College. One of the things you get when you leave there is uh, a custom-made clown suit, which is a really cool thing because, you know, the one I have looks amazing, but it's all wool. <laughs> okay. okay. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's sounds I hot. Like yeah. a, sort of like a, a twisted little businessman. So I had a, a shirt, a vest, a coat, a derby, and wool pants. And the pants were high-waisted, too. So I'm basically, I'm drenched in wool. I mean... You're in a uh, wool sauna, basically. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, the first job I had uh, getting out of clown college was this. Um, oh no, it must not have been the. It must have been the following summer, actually, because you, you get through clown college in, in the fall, or in any case, it was October. So this was the following June, or, or you know, middle of summer, and it was hot. And are we in Illinois still? Yeah, this is this is a company party, in Chicago. It was hot and humid. Yeah, super hot, super humid. And when I set up the performance space in this, uh, like the middle of a field, basically, there was like two trees. Mm -hmm. And I was, I had the option of either putting myself in the shade or my audience in the shade. And just for practical matters, doing comedy, I always try to get the audience as comfortable as possible. Yeah. Because they're, they're more likely to laugh if they're not suffering. Sure. Especially if they're not staring into the sun. Yeah. That's a tough one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'll stare into the sun rather than them. Yeah. Every... Yeah, so I got heat stroke. <laughs> so you're, you're wearing this wool, you got heat stroke in a wool clown suit. Yeah, in a wool clown suit. And it was pretty early on in the, in the act, like maybe seven, eight, nine minutes in. And, and I felt myself getting kind of sick. And then I just, uh, okay. I vomited so hard. But on stage. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Front, you know. I have, I've not done that. I, uh, but I had uh, the presence of mind to clamp my lips closed as tightly as possible, and I didn't lose a single drop of puke. Oh, my God. So you just vomited inside your own mouth. Yeah, and I completely filled my mouth. I mean, I looked oh like, okay. looked like you know, <laughs> right. my cheeks were as expanded as they could have gotten. You're a chipmunk and, vomit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so there I am, you know, on stage with my eyes were huge. And uh, my cheeks were huge. Oh. And I just, I made the choice to swallow. Oh. Yeah, I didn't. All right. All right. This, this, so you didn't swallow for Simon, but in this case, you're like, all right. This <laughs> yeah. time you swallowed. Well, yeah, yeah. You're a pro. You're a trooper. Uh-huh. Yeah, and I still had probably like 35 minutes of show to do. Oh, God. Yeah. All right. And I did it. I did it. Mm. Was there hopefully water involved or some kind of rinsing of the mouth or? I did get a water, yeah. Nice. <laughs> now, these are the kind of things, though, that, that these stories are, they, they do teach a lesson, that you have to be aware of the temperature, you have to be aware of the conditions. 
And uh, one thing you've done to try to teach people about show business experience, which I think is great, and this is how I became aware of you myself, is you have a very complex and a very in-depth blog uh, with, with show business ideas, show business tips. Can you first of all start by giving us the address of how we'd find that? Oh, yeah. Just go to bradweston.com. bradweston.com. And Brad, what I have here is I have a bunch of topics. So if you don't mind, we're going to go through these pretty quick. You can give me a little bit of an idea about what your sort of thoughts are on these different blog topics. First of all, what's your mission statement? What are you trying to accomplish with this blog? I think my, uh, my thought process is I love the variety arts, and I don't want to see them get screwed up by shoddy work. So if there's anything I can do to help people become better performers, yeah, I'd love to love to be of service to my community. And you also have some good business tips. So let's start with, you don't have to list all seven, but what are some of the best ways, if you're not getting enough gigs, what do you think you're doing wrong? What's a good way to sort of jumpstart and get more gigs? Okay, now just, just to, to level with you right now, sure. I haven't looked at these writings in probably a couple of years. If you had to sum it up in one word or one idea, if things are slow, what should you do, you think, sort of jumpstart stuff? Doesn't have to be a very complex. So, so I, can, I can answer the question, but I don't know for sure what that article's about, I guess is what I'm saying. Don't go by the article. Just go yeah. by what you're feeling now. All right. Well, the, the way to get work is to uh, get your name in front of people. It means basically that you've got to figure out how to show up on somebody's desk. And ideally, it's not going to be just sending an email like everybody else is doing. You don't want to be in the same stack as everybody else. You want to stand out. Yeah, so ideally, I mean, a personal email, hey, how you doing? I'm in town. If you don't remember, here's what I do. I'd love to work with you again. That kind of thing. It's hard to get people to hire you if not if they're not aware you don't exist in the first place. Yeah, or if, if they haven't seen your name on their desk in a year, even. And do you do like a newsletter or something to kind of keep it going like that? I do a newsletter, but I think I think I get more work just by calling people on the phone and asking them how they're doing, saying hi. So it's more like creating personal connections. Yeah, pretty much. I think that's that is the business right there. And you have another good one that's very important that goes to all aspects of the business and life itself. You have one titled gratitude. What is what does gratitude mean to you? Well, I think that uh, being filled with joy is the um, it's the goal. Of, of everybody who's alive or should be the goal. Sure, to be happy. Yeah, to be happy. And as it relates to performing, if you are happy, people respond. People want more of that. So it's important to find the type of work that you can be happy with and then express that. And I don't mean I don't mean don't be sarcastic or don't be totally bitter. Hmm. You can be bitter and sure. joy-filled. I complain about every job I go on, I think, to my wife. Like, oh, this is the last one. Or, oh, I can't believe I'm doing this again. But then I go and do it. But I like yeah, to complain sure. a little bit about it first. just to. I like to complain to my audience. I like to be oh. bitter <laughs> with them. Yeah, but your <laughs> wife is, is actually a performer. You, you have a, one of the few relationships where you met a fellow performer and you guys got married. How is sort of the two-performer household work? Because my wife is a graphic artist and I'm the, the performer in the house. So how does it work with two performers? Well, it's great because if I go to my wife and say, right before I did the bar mitzvah show, they set up a candy full of table right next to the stage, she oh. knows how that feels. Sure, sure, sure. It's hard to compete with candy or a bounce house. 
Yeah, right. Yeah, the bounce house. Which especially they here's your stage right next to the bounce house. You're like, uh, thank you <laughs> for yeah. that. Yeah, so that's good. So, and she also a juggler. Yeah, she is. She's a juggler, stilt walker, puppeteer, comedian. And do you guys also work together or do you keep the two things separate? We keep saying we're going to work together and we haven't really yet. And neither of us is sure why because we still both really want to. Well, maybe the right situation because you could see like a traveling thing where, you know, you had to both be away or at some job where you have to leave for six months, which is sort of the, the problem with a lot of relationships. If someone gets a long term gig, like I have a friend who booked like a nine-month engagement. You know, you're leaving your relationships, and that's tough. So yeah. when you were both kind of working in town, it's one thing. But when someone has to leave for a long period of time, that's rough. Now, where's the, where's the amusement park in relationship to your house? Is that near where you live? No, it's five and a half hours away. So how do you how do you do that? Because we also are provided an apartment to live in. But you work seven days a week. Uh, you've got a three-year-old and we have two one-year-olds. We've got some twins. Wow. Okay. You know, it's like I come out here and I do five shows a day in the sun and the wind, and it's still so much more relaxing. <laughs> you get a good night's sleep at least, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but my wife is here. The kids are here. Oh, great. Yeah. I mean, that's just it. I wouldn't take an extended job. I wouldn't even want to do a couple of weeks at this point with such little kids in the house unless they were there with me. Yeah, it's kind of unfair, and I think a lot of people think that when we go away... Like, let's say you're doing a, a cruise ship or something that sounds like fun. It's hard to convince people that it's work. Right. Like, no, that's my job. Like, but you get to go away and do this thing, and here I am at home. And you're like, well, that's just the way I set things up. So. Yeah. But it's good that it's, it's worked out so well to have your family there, especially with such little kids. I'm sure that brings you a lot of joy, the, the family yeah. and the kids. Yeah. It, I mean, it's pretty good because these kids, this is my fourth year working at this park. Oh, nice. Uh, and I hope to do it for a while. I, there's no guarantees, of course, with this type of work. It's just one year contract at a time. It feels like my kids are growing up here at the park. I mean, they're friends with the owners and the management and the the characters. Nice. And what's the name of the park you're working at? It's called Adventureland Park. Adventureland Park. Now, like I say, I worked at an amusement park many years ago, but I like I like the atmosphere at an amusement park personally. I mean, people are there to have fun. How, how can you go wrong with that? Yeah. Now let's talk a little bit about where we have a few more topics to cover before I let you go. Let's go back to your blog because you also have a lot of thoughts about creating and inspiration. Yeah. What, what, do you have a process like if you're trying to come up with a new idea? Where, where do inspirations come from? Well, I think the place that inspiration comes from is when your wires get crossed in your brain. I think if you're trying to hammer straight towards something that you already know what you're aiming at, then you're not going to be creative at all. So the way to become creative is to sort of know the direction of a solution, but not understand the parameters yet. Yeah, don't be shut off, right? Like once you figure out the solution, then then you sort of shut off from any other ideas coming. If you already think I know what this is. Yeah, it's for me. It's all about mixing, mixing my brain up, not focusing too intently on one particular thing. Now, do you think there's sort of a creative source? So I believe there's sort of a creative source that you can tap into. Is, do you feel like that or is it sort of, I mean, that's sort of a lot of great artists have thought like when I'm thinking my best, the ideas sort of flow through me. Do you think you tap into a creative source or do you think it all kind of comes from within? Well, yeah, I think it comes from within. I don't believe in like the ether or some kind of 
unmeasurable medium mm -hmm. that could transmit data. <laughs> I, mean, I believe more just like in the, the force of creativity. Like there's a creative, like we find ourselves in a creation. That's sort of my religious belief that we sort of find ourselves in a creation. Therefore, there's some kind of creator. I don't know what that is, but the, we're in a creation. Therefore, somehow it's connected to something that starts with a creative force. That's about as much as I've thought it out. I've, thought it out. I've done some, uh, some story writing, and I can definitely turn my brain off and watch the story happen as my fingers are moving. And it doesn't feel like me. It doesn't feel like the self that I identify with that's making the thing. Right. However, just because it doesn't feel like me doesn't mean it isn't sure. the machine of my brain doing the work. I mean, you can call it like the flow state or something like that. You've, yeah, exactly. you've gotten physiologically into a condition that's allowed you to sort of tap into your optimum creativity. It doesn't necessarily have to come from, it's just the way I sort of picture it in my own mind that, that there's a funnel and that the more I'm open the funnel to this source, the better my ideas are. I find things that, that sort of close the funnel down or like if I have a wealth of ideas, kind of clogs the funnel up. Like I have five ideas I haven't got to yet. Then it's hard to come up with new ideas. So to me, I feel like that's sort of clogging my funnel. So I need to clear those out first. So it's more of a metaphor for me. I, I keep a, a journal. So when I come up with ideas, I write them down. And I've got way, way, <laughs> way more ideas than I could ever possibly get to in yeah. my life. Yeah, it's yeah. funny. I'm working on an idea now that I don't even remember how I came up with it because I had it. I, I made this this prop. I put it in my garage and then I found it. And I thought, how come I never use this? Yeah. And I don't even remember really where it came from in my mind, except for that I created it. It's a very odd experience. As far as uh, advice, you have a, another interesting uh, thing on your blog. You don't have good advice. You have bad advice. And what are some of the dangers of bad advice? Uh, well, I think, uh, I think that a lot of people will tell you how to go about making a life for yourself or approaching the work that don't actually, A, know how to do it themselves, and, and B, they don't know how, how it will work for you. I mean, like a joke, for instance, yeah. you could tell a joke and totally kill with it, and then I could try to tell it and completely bomb. It's like even, you know, something as simple as a few sentences doesn't work the same for each person. Yeah, so it's, it's like career advice. It's great to immerse yourself in a class, and I think it's even kind of important, but, but one should understand that what you're doing is you're learning somebody else's system, and you have to go along with their parameters of what works and what doesn't work in order to understand what their system is. But then when it's all said and done, you have to find out what works for you. Well, it reminds me of a situation we got into. There was a juggler, uh, Dick Franco, great, great juggler. And he gave us some advice where he said, what you got to do is you have to come out, establish yourself as a juggler first, and then do the comedy. Like you should be a juggler first, because that's how he did it, uh -huh. which is fine advice for him. But we, we did it like, for two years. We'd come out to like a music opener. Uh, and sometimes it worked well, but other times we'd be really droppy or the lights would be bad. And sometimes it really dug us in a hole. And it took us a long time to realize he wasn't trying to mislead us or give us bad advice, but he was giving us advice that worked for him. Yeah. It took a long time to realize that, that you say that all advice, even if it's not intentionally trying to give you the opposite of what you should be doing, put it through the prism of it's working for them. It's their advice. 
how does it fit for you and what you do? Uh -huh. So another piece of advice was, uh, was to pass the hat before the last trick. Did you ever do that? Oh, I have tried it. And uh, yeah, it's not for me. No, not for us either. That was another one. It worked for the performer who suggested it, but not for us. I got a couple more. Uh, I'll let you go in a sec. I got a couple more uh, blog uh, topics I'd like to cover before this uh, bleeds over into like the 70, 80 minute zone. So you have one called Jokes Are Bad. Oh, yeah. Do you remember that one? I do. And this specifically is I'm talking about myself. Okay. Because to but, me, jokes are good. So. Well, it could be jokes are good, but. Uh, one of the reasons I feel jokes are bad for me is because I want the audience to feel like they're sharing this unique moment in time with me. I want them to feel like we're having a conversation. And so I'm a humorist. I mean, I do a comedy act, right. but if I tell a joke with a punchline, then to them, they feel like they've, like they're being served something that's been served to someone else before. Comes out a little too scripted. Yeah, and I think that that's that's the problem. There's there's a an expression I really like called uh, it goes the the tyranny of the script. And so if you if you have a, a script that you can't deviate from, it's this tyrant that drives you, and that can really ruin an act. Well, I think it just in general, it's good advice. Uh, I, I followed an act a long time ago at a fair. I think we followed them five or six shows, and I realized this act never changed, and I just thought. People do that, yeah. <laughs> you know why? Every show was the same, and me and me and Barry, like every show was there was a, a core thread, of course, and lines that we would try to hit or whatever. But there was so much variety in every show we did. The idea of doing it, like you said, being the tyranny of the script, being locked to the script, is sort of the death of spontaneity, right? In our field, like obviously, if you do a play, you're not allowed to change the script. That's part of the parameters of a play. Yeah, I mean, it's it's tough, but. Uh, for us, you know, you want to have a strong framework, but if you don't improv, especially like what you're doing when you're doing multiple shows a day in the heat and all these situations, man, you got to, you got to be flexible. You got to have fun. You got to play around. So yeah. you got to keep the improv coming. Okay, let's finish up with one more because this one was another intriguing one. Don't be a spaz. I don't know if, even, I don't know if spaz is a, uh, is that a politically incorrect term? No, I don't think so. Uh, I'm not sure. And, you know, this is an article I have no idea what I was talking about. Well, let's, let's just take it to a different direction then. Like, okay, we've talked about what people can do well, you can get exposure. What can someone do to sort of sabotage their career? What have you seen and what do you think that is sort of the mistakes you've seen people make? Well, one of the biggest mistakes I see people make is uh, to just sort of have negative attitudes about other people. I think gossiping is something that makes people not want to work with other people. And it's something to be scrupulously avoided. I think also you have to root for other people's success. I mean, like right now, like we're talking about uh, the passing zone on America's Got Talent. And at one time, the Raspini brothers in the passing zone, I wouldn't call us rivals, but we were certainly both in that same position. Of a lot of exposure in the juggling world, you know, getting on TV, stuff like that. We've sort of gotten into semi-retirement and they're still going. But yeah, when I see them, all I think is... Thank goodness somebody is representing juggling in a positive way. That's all I can really think is that that by them doing well, it helps all of us. Because then people see juggling as something that maybe they can't get them, but maybe they can get one of us. Yeah. I think yeah. that does that does good for the entire juggling industry. 
And I think someone like you does very well for the industry because here you are exposing people day after day in the amusement park to your skills and talents. And where do you see the future going for, for Brad Weston? Uh, well, eventually death. Okay, but before that, let's not, before that's maybe the, part of, the, of the, uh, the, the bucket list we can leave for the last part. <laughs> yeah. Before uh, that. And how uh, do you want to go? <laughs> I think in my sleep, I think, you know? Yeah, in I don't know. I think I want to go on the top of a mountain. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Kind of a dramatic final moment. But is there, some, is there some kind of dream for you, something you want to accomplish or somewhere you want to go that, that you haven't gone yet in juggling? Well, there's a lot of, lot of places, a lot of countries I've never worked in. I mean, I've never done a show in Asia yet, which seems kind of crazy. I've been in it so long, you'd think I would have, but nope. Well, I have a good announcement to make myself. If people have heard this, this podcast before, I've often mentioned I want to go to China. Like that's been when I wanted to go to Dubai. I finally went to Dubai. And I just got a contract. I'm going to go to China in September for three weeks. Oh, congratulations. So uh, I've been to Japan. I've been to South Korea. But now I finally get to achieve my China dreams. And I hope uh, you get to hit see Asia as well. It's fascinating. Yeah. And then so, when does this gig end? When, is you, when are you uh, at the amusement park till? Uh, I'm here until basically October. So, so my listeners, any day of the week... If you're, if you're sitting there, you're a juggler, you want to picture Brad Weston. He's out at the, the amusement park in Illinois. No, it's in Iowa. In Iowa. Which is, some people pronounce Iowa's. Which kind of, <laughs> yeah, right. Iowa. Uh, if you want to picture Brad, he's out there in Iowa. Seven days a week, three shows a day, and two stilt walking sets. Doing his best to represent juggling in a positive light for all of us. And I thank you, Brad Weston. Yeah, nice talking to you. Hey, thanks, man. Thanks. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was. Well, that was podcast number 34 of Drop Everything, my conversation with Brad Weston, the hardest working man in show business. Seven days a week, three shows a day, and two stilt sets. That's tough. My hat's off to Brad Weston, and much success to you, buddy. Hey, let's also thank our sponsors before we go. International Jugglers Association. I'm on this Monday. I'm leaving this Monday to go to the convention. And, uh, I'm looking forward to it. I think it's a great group of jugglers, a great group of people. I hope you all join the IJA. Also, my personal coaching website is alwaysbraindrizzles.com. I've talked about it enough. So if you're a performer, come call me over there and I'll give you a free consult. We'll see what we can do together. All right, that wraps up number 34. Let's say goodbye and let's say drop everything except when you're juggling.